Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto. Welcome to Thriller Insider. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another exciting episode of Thriller Insider. My name is Car Car Gonzalez. Today is August 2nd, 2019. And yes, we are talking the Fed effect on Bitcoin today. So this is going to be a Thriller Insider. This is going to be something that's going to be really beefy. This is probably one of those episodes you're going to want to listen to, you know, somewhere like halfway, maybe stop <laughs> and then, you know, continue on. Uh, it's I'm just going to say this right from the top. This has become one of the most fascinating aspects for me, just getting involved in crypto. I never would have imagined in the entire time being involved in crypto since 2015 that I would be more interested in the macro trends and what's exactly happening on with the Fed and the governments and how all that's being uh, just funneled, Right. And how you have cryptocurrency and DLT and blockchain and Bitcoin and everything in between coming to almost ahead with it and almost where it's going to merge at some point. So I just want to let you know that uh, <laughs> this this took a lot of research. This this is something that I spent probably about four and a half, five, six hours today working on. Um, not so much the actual talking on my part. It's more about just creating a overall understanding of what's going on, building out uh, like if you would uh, uh, just an audio book. It almost, it almost seems like, but with the vast majority of the content being pulled from different sources and being presented to y'all, the listeners, so you can better understand how this effect is going to affect Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but mainly right now in the short term. And when I say short time, I mean in the next two to three years, maybe five even, just depending on how fast all this goes. So I want to let you know we have a good show today. OK, first thing I want to talk about is the Fed cuts. So we all know that this has happened. You know, the Federal Reserve is cutting interest rates and they did on August 1st. And that was the first time they've done it since the 2000 financial crisis. And a lot of a lot of the listeners that, that we have for Thriller Crypto are, you know, are, have been through that. I don't I, I can't think of maybe one person that uh, that listens that I've talked to that doesn't remember the 2008 financial crisis. So we're not going to cover that point. I'm going to assume that you already know what that is. Well, that was the same year that the Bitcoin white paper was released. It was released because of that. This is a reason why Bitcoin is so important. And one of the main reasons I think it holds tremendous value. Now, in Jerome Powell, he is the Fed chair, and he was the one that was cutting the interest rate by 25 basis points or 0.25%. In the statement, the Fed pointed out that the United States economy has seen steady growth with the unemployment rate remaining low and household spending increasing from earlier in the year. The agency also noted that inflation is running below 2%. However, the agency still decided to cut the interest rate in light of implications on global developments for the economic outlook, as well as muted inflation pressures. 
With this cut, the Fed hopes to sustain the expansion of economic activity, although it also cautions that uncertainties remain about because of what was done and how it relates to the 2008 financial crisis. So what does this mean for Bitcoin? Before we even get into that, we, we need to understand what the Fed is. And I didn't really want to put this part, portion of the inside the podcast because I felt like it was too, you know, very much coursey. And when I say coursey, I mean like very much school. But and then I started thinking about it. And the more I started putting together this, I realized, no, you really need to have a base understanding of, of how the Fed works and why it works and how it kind of came about uh, in order to understand, you know, what the implications are for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies going forward. So it's a remarkable evolution how these institutions of what I would call modern monetary behemoths, right, created this system. And in 2008, we had this wake up call. And, you know, this similar evolution is kind of happening right now in front of us with cryptocurrency and DLT. And it's it's created this new kind of economic thinking, right, of how we look at things, or at least for myself, I'm not sure how you feel about that, but it definitely reveals vulnerabilities uh, inside of what we have going on. And that, and that that's a result of, you know, I'm not blaming past generations. I'm not here to, you know, force blame on anybody, but I, I do recognize that there are vulnerabilities with the system that we have in place. And so what I did is some research uh, at Columbia University where they have a whole course, a 50 hour course on economics of money and banking. I'm still working my way through it, but I do want to pinpoint on one specific section that talks about why the Fed was created, how it was created, and what are the different facets of that. Okay, take a listen. There there are sorts of uh, three groups of banks there. New York, Chicago, and St. Louis, he says, are special. They, they are required by law to hold 25% reserves. And you can see that he's showing their deposits, 825 uh, millions of dollars, okay, in deposits in New York, 262 in Chicago, 116 in St. Louis. These are the main banking cities in the United States. There is no central bank at the time that he's writing. This is before the Fed, okay? So, th so this is, this is, he doesn't actually say exactly what date this, this came from, okay? But it's before, it's before the Fed. And um, so they have deposit accounts. Those deposit accounts are liabilities of these banks. To, to some extent, the central bank of the United States was the collection of banks in New York. You see how they have most of the deposits, and you're talking here about J.P. Morgan and his buddies, okay? And they're the ones who are doing international transactions. New York is very much the center where, where the United States banking system faces Europe. They're required to hold reserves in lawful money, um, and that means green pieces of paper, basically, um, uh, currency. Um, at least for these central banks, the, these banks in New York, Chicago, and St. Louis, and you can see that's how much they have, classification of reserve. Um, lawful money in the bank, 218 million, 66, 26 there. And there's the percentages. 26.8% um, is in New York, 25%. They, they were required by law, he says, to hold 25% of their deposits in lawful money. So there's a, there's a reserve requirement. The second group, other reserve cities, so this is Boston, this is Chicago, not Chicago, um, uh, San Francisco, other important cities, Kansas City, um, that also are money center banks, but not as important as these other three, are also required to hold 25% reserves, but they can hold some of their reserves as deposits in New York. Okay? And that's what that second column is there, due from reserve agents. Okay? So there's this sort of layering. And then there's the country banks, okay, which are small banks, 6,000 of them, Okay, the United States had just lots and lots of little banks, um, 
which are, have to hold 15% reserves, and they can hold them partly in, in, in cash, $199 million there, and partly in other reserve cities or in New York. Okay, so that's $226 million. So there's, the, there's this layering where country banks are holding their reserves as deposits in their local money bank, okay, which is holding its reserves in New York, okay, which is holding its reserves in lawful money, okay, which is either green piece of paper or gold, I should, I should say, because it's the gold standard at this time. So all while this, this, these legal tender things are going on, in 1863, the Salmon P. Chase tries something else. He goes back. I don't really know what the story is. It would be interesting to go back and find out. Why did he give up on this legal tenders? Maybe there was too much pushback or whatever. But so he tries to go for the bonds again. Tries to go for, for, the, for, for the bonds again. This time, what he does is he says to the banking system, I would like to sell you some of these bonds that really have very little, very low rate of interest on them. I would like you to pay full price for them so that I'm paying 2% interest, and, and that means giving me deposits for them. That's what I would like you to do. So the government goes to the banking system and says, this is what I would like. I would like to be issuing these special 2% bonds, and I would like to get deposit accounts for them. I'm not going to withdraw these things for gold, because I know you don't have any gold anymore, um, and what you would give me is, is, is legal tenders. Um, but this is what I would like you, like you to do. Why would the banking system agree to that? Okay. To sweeten the pot, said to the banking system, and I'm going to let you issue uh, banknotes, banknote currency, using these bonds as collateral. Using these bonds as collateral. Issue banknote currency using these bonds as collateral. I know these are all kind of new words. Okay. So let's just play out, let's just, let me just play out what actually happened. What happened is that the government uses these, and so anyway, the banking system said yes, okay, and the government uh, uh, uses these deposit accounts to buy war goods from the private sector. The government is basically borrowing from the banking system, and it's borrowing, and the banking system is creating new money by expanding its own balance sheet, deposit accounts here, and the government is using those deposit accounts to pay for war goods. Not legal tenders, but promises to pay legal tenders. That's what these deposits are now, right? These are promises to pay legal tenders. Okay? But now, because he gave this nice, uh, because, because they gave this nice feature to the bonds that you could use them as collateral for note issue, any time the private sector, now the private sector has all these deposits, maybe it wants, some, wants to, to actually withdraw them, okay? And when the private sector withdraws them, instead of paying in the bank's own reserves, the legal tenders, the bank has the right to print notes. That's the point. So let's, have, let's just suppose that the private sector withdraws all of the deposits. So these bonds are thought of as the collateral that is backing these bank notes. Okay? Meaning to say that if this bank fails... Okay, these notes, which are out in circulation, these aren't deposit accounts at the bank, right? They're out floating around in circulation. Um, that the, this bank is depositing these bonds at a central location so that if you ever wanted to cash in your, your bank note, you don't have to go back to the bank, which may be bankrupt. You can take that bank note and you can, you can get a 2% government bond for it. 
Okay? That's the sense in which it's collateral. It's backing, it's backing the value of this note. Okay? So it's just as if, it's just as if the, uh, the government had borrowed from the banking system by, allow, by allowing the banking system to write to, write to create money to just write its own notes. So it's, these, are, these are one step removed from legal tenders. These are promises to pay legal tender um, and, they're, and they're private money. Okay. And the key thing is that there was only a fixed number of these bonds. And at the end of the war, that became the money supply that you're seeing up there. Okay. Lawful money in the bank, that's where that money came from. Okay. That was... That was a, a, and there's some gold there, and there's some gold there too, because there was resumption of the legal tenders and so forth. Okay, but there's a fixed supply of of base money in the country after 1863. Okay, a fixed supply of base money after after 1863. It doesn't expand or contract with the business cycle very much, because once the Fed was created, the the, the U.S. went to war again. Okay, and the Fed got involved not so much in this kind of action, okay, but in financing another war. And so at the end of the war, the Fed, the Reserve Banks, and in fact even all the member banks were stuffed full of treasury bills. That's what they had. They had treasury bills uh, as a consequence of war. And so the whole system in the 20s, even when, even when Alan Young is writing, the banks, the Federal Reserve Banks, are all stuffed full of treasury bills. He doesn't mention this. He's imagining that this is temporary. Right? That this is not how the system was supposed to work. Okay? It's temporary. And so they're trying to figure out a temporary way of creating elasticity in this kind of elasticity without the mechanism that they imagined would provide it. And he's imagining open market operations. He talks about open market operations. None of this could happen okay, because all the banks are filled with treasury bills. So instead what we had was open market operations. Open market operations were invented by the New York Fed, by Benjamin Strong, in the 20s, exactly when Alan Young is writing. This thing you've learned in your intermediate macro or even intro macro class, right, about how the Fed changes the money supply by buying treasury bills or selling treasury bills or something, that's what we mean by, by, by open market operations, right? I'm not going to write down those balance sheets because, in fact, the Fed never did use that mechanism to change. That, that's not actually true how open market operations work. It involves the repo market and other things. But we're going to get to that okay, in, in a while. I just want to, to say, to emphasize here, that the importance of open market operations is a historical accident. Okay? It's an accident that the Fed got stuffed with treasury bills. It was never supposed to lend to the government. This is why I tell you all this history. right? The whole danger of central banking is that is legal tenders, the greenbacks, are in the minds of, of, of the framers of the Federal Reserve. It's like, give the government power to print money, and it is going to print money. So we want to make sure that you, you are only, gonna, only allowed to use loans to Main Street as collateral for expanding the reserves. Only use loans to Main Street as collateral for expanding Federal Reserve notes. Okay. But then came World War, World War I. The cat was out of the bag. And we got used to that. We're now, you, no one now finds it weird to say, look at that. The, 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 the Federal Reserve is stuffed full of treasury bills. You know, people thought that's the way it should be. 
In fact, they found it weird when the, when, the, when the Federal Reserve liquidated all those treasury bills and made loans to banks, to the private sector, um, or to Chrysler, or you know, in its commercial paper op operations and so forth. They found that weird. But somebody who had a knowledge of history would remember, there's nothing natural about this. Central banks don't necessarily lend mainly to the government. Um, it wasn't supposed to in the first place. That wasn't, that wasn't the idea. Okay, so let's, uh, let's draw some conclusions here. I think it's about time. What, what I'm trying to, I mean, I'm, I'm partly trying to get you used to this balance sheet way of thinking, okay? But there is actually uh, a, a conceptual point here, too, about the relationship between the government, state money, and private money and the banking system. It's a complex thing. You know, we, we live in a hybrid system that is partly, where, where the central bank is partly a banker's bank, so it's a bank for other banks. In times of crisis, it's a government bank. It, provide, it helps the government sell its bonds um, in, in war. It did this in World War I. It did this in World War II. It'll do it again. You know, if we, it, this, this, is what it will, this is what it will do, and that's its job. It's not, it's not any kind of perversion of, of its job. That is its job. In normal times, it's, it facilitates the operations of private, of private capital markets. And it's moving back and forth between, between those uh, over, over time. Here's another one of those instances where you can build monetary theory okay, by imagining that really at the root of everything is the state that is printing money. And everything else is just a promise to that. And so it's really all about the state. Okay? Or... You can build a whole monetary theory by saying, really, it's all the private banking system, okay, and the government is making use of the private banking system to borrow or something like that. Okay? So we start with the original, the gold standard, and people borrowing and you know, making pledges. So you can build monetary theories that are pure private money, and you can build monetary theories that are pure state money. And neither of these is going to do you any good, because the actual system is a hybrid. The actual system is a hybrid, and it, and it moves back and forth. Sometimes it's more one, sometimes it's more the other. Here's another example where it's better to know two theories which claim to be opposites, okay, because both of them are true in some dimension. Okay? Both of them are true about the part of the system they're talking about, okay, but not about the whole system. So, again, I find myself you know, in, in, in between, not being, willing, not, not being a chartalist, uh, uh, but neither being a medalist either, okay? Um, but understanding both of those positions, the elasticity position and the, and, the, and, the, and the discipline position, the monitor's position and the Keynesian position, okay? They both get at genuine features of the actual system. I find this balance sheet approach very helpful for letting us know when, when one approach makes sense and when we, should be, when we should be focusing on the other approach because this is always true. The balance sheet approach is, is really just a relationship between debits and, debits and credits. So this will, this will always work for you. Whether you're talking about state money or whether you're talking about private money, um, you can use the same language. So it's a great bridging technique, and that's why, that's why I emphasize it um, in this course. And I'll put a link to that, to that course here in the newsletter because I, I think it's 
pretty phenomenal that they're giving out this much information. I, re- I remember like this wasn't something that was actually discussed, uh, at least in my economic classes. Um, so I, I imagine that if you had a similar background, then you probably would find this very interesting. At least I have. Uh, I'll put a link into it. His name is Perry Merling, by the way. He's a professor at Columbia, and he did a fantastic job on that. So one of the uh, things that has me concerned is just the lowering interest rates, right? And and this is kind of the Fed's way to boost the economy. And it, it's typically done during dire times. And like Perry said, this is, this is normal. This is how it usually goes. But it's a little difficult to argue right now with what the United States is experiencing and kind of the global macro trends. It kind of feels like an insurance cut. You know, it's it it wants these it wants to counteract these negative effects of what, you know, President Trump's doing with the trade war and kind of prevent the United States from, you know, catching the same thing that's going on in Europe and, and some of these other places like Venezuela. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an understandable sentiment why this was done. Uh, but I think ultimately we need to look at this not at a, a reactionary point of view, but we need to find out exactly what everybody in the Wall Street side of things is looking at it first before we look at Bitcoin. Like what are the people that are actually doing the treasury bonds, that are doing the trades here, that are actually looking at commodities and futures, right, that aren't related to Bitcoin, right? So let's find out what that means first before we jump into Bitcoin, because that's the that's the key part here, right? So Jim Bianco, he analyzes this first Fed rate cut in 11 years. Take a listen. Um, this market wants the Fed to cut rates several times. Let me ask, let me ask the question, why? Okay. The U.S. has the highest interest rates in the developed world. Our funds rate, even now, it's at 2, two to 225. Our 10-year yield, even though it's at 201, is actually the only developed world in, uh, interest rate with a two-handle or higher. Our rates are too high relative to the rest of the world. That's why the market is pricing in several rate cuts. The market wants us to come in line because, I know there's a lot of old guys listening, as I remember when rates were 15. It doesn't matter. It's a relative game. Mm-hmm. We're too high relative to everybody else. We have to come down. Okay. If we're not going to come down fast enough, the markets are going to have a bad reaction to it. That's what you're seeing today. Now, it could be undone. The Fed could whisper in the people's ears. You misunderstood the chairman. At the sure, party. sure. But we'll see. But if these markets stay down, it's going to be a problem for the Fed. And we have a bubble on our hands like 2000. Right. I have my doubts whether that would actually come to pass. But nevertheless, that is a legitimate worry. But that's not what we have now. That's something to worry about later. If you don't move fast enough, you're going to get the reverse of that. And that's what you're risking right now by saying it's not the beginning of a cut campaign, which is what Paul said about 20 minutes ago. The market, there's an old saying in the markets that the Fed decides when to hike and the markets decide when to cut. And like that's this. exactly what's been happening for the last few months. And the market has been telling the Fed, we want three or four rate cuts over the next year. And the Fed has been pushing back and saying, we'll give you one now. I don't know if we're going to give you another one. So the market's taking it out. When you say overzealous, it's trying to get the Fed there. Remember, eight months ago, the Fed was at two rate hikes Mm -hmm. for this year. And we took that out and we've ended QT. The balance sheet reductions ended today as well, too. And now we got a rate cut. It wants more. So is the market too zealous on that? I don't know. Is the market going to push the Fed somewhere where it doesn't want to go? That appears to be the case. Mm. And what will the market's reaction be? Not good. Not good is what the market's reaction would be. So that's a great analysis about how they view this first rate cut in 11 years, right? 
But one of the other key aspects of this is Trump's trade war. And like you, like I've said in the past, I'm not I'm not getting into politics. I'm not discussing politics in Thriller Crypto. We don't do that. I, I really care about understanding and trying to figure out what's going on here, like how this is all connected, right? I'm more about that. Okay, so there is a concern out there about the trade war, as well as weakness overseas dragging down the U.S. economy. A closer look reveals that there are already a few yellow, if not red flags happening right now. And this is kind of manufacturing into what people are calling a technical recession for the first half of the year. The housing market remains sluggish. The business environment and investment tanked in the spring as corporate leaders grow more wary of the ongoing trade tensions. This has really come to a, a, a head with what Powell and, uh, and, the, and the Fed Vice Chair Richard Calido are doing. And these headwinds and these downside risks that are picking up, you know, they prefer to address them before they grow into deeper problems. Now, if you don't understand how the trade war works and why this is important to the United States economy, I totally get that because I really couldn't tell you exactly how that all fits. But the Wall Street Journal has created something that I think is pretty extraordinary when it comes to a video explaining why the trade war is so important. And I wanna play that for you right now. Take a listen. You may have noticed that suddenly in the US there are a lot more things that are made in Vietnam. Vietnamese exports of electronics that fill our homes have increased by more than 70%. Well, in fact, many of those goods are not really from Vietnam. They're actually made in China. If you look closely at trade data, you find that Vietnam is also importing much more from China. Trade experts offer one explanation. Companies are moving goods like cell phones and laptops first to Vietnam, then swap the country of origin label before shipping those same goods to the US. It's a widespread technique called transshipment. So it doesn't look good when it all comes out of China, so they send it through other countries. The whole point? To get past hefty tariffs, like the Trump administration's 25% levy on $250 billion worth of Chinese goods. With the ongoing U.S.-China trade dispute, higher U.S. tariffs hit Chinese exports. Vietnamese customs officials say they see transshipment with products like electronics, steel, and furniture. And it's not just Vietnam that plays the middleman. Shippers say Thailand, Malaysia, and other countries around the world are also pit stops. Both governments responded to various media requests over the past year, saying they were monitoring the situation. Chinese authorities did not respond to our request for comment. Authorities in the U.S. said they are stepping up efforts to curb the malpractice. And so did Vietnam. They're just people who are in a jam looking for an easy way to solve their problems. Steve Dickinson is a trade lawyer who works with foreign companies manufacturing in China. He says he always advises his clients that transshipment is illegal, but he explained to us how some companies go about it. Some companies will unload at port and minimally alter the product before attaching a new origin label. For instance, U.S. commerce officials said that Vietnamese factories have been minimally processing Chinese steel. For example, by rolling it, wrapping it in a protective zinc layer, then changing the label. Though Dickinson says he knows of companies that don't even bother changing labels. They just get a certificate or some other customs document where the product itself remains no change and they just try to work with falsified shipping documents. It seems like such a simple hack, but U.S. Customs agents are having a hard time catching tariff cheaters. What makes it particularly difficult is that in a country like Vietnam, 
there are already a lot of real made in Vietnam exports, like sneakers, microwaves, and refrigerators. It was relatively easy to hide transship products in the mass of completely legitimate products coming out of Vietnam. U.S. Customs and Border Protection already scan shipping containers that dock at U.S. ports. But lawyers like Dickinson say monitoring 11 million containers for transshipped products is a daunting task. So, another tactic to fight transshipment? U.S. Customs are encouraging people to become snitches. Anyone who reports transshipment to authorities can be awarded a 15 to 30% cut from the total value of the goods that were seized. Buyers in the U.S. who knowingly import transshipped products will also be on the hook. If caught, they will face hefty fines and even prison time. For companies, the U.S.-China trade dispute is creating a lot of uncertainty, and some are considering moving part of their production out of China. In some cases, companies are playing by the rules by only assembling the final part of a product in Vietnam or other countries. In some cases, companies walk a fine line between what's legal and what is not. To claim that a product has been made in one country, a certain percentage of it has to be manufactured there. That percentage varies for each product, but many companies will only assemble the final part of their devices in Vietnam. You can be bringing in components from 15 different countries, and then you assemble it in one country and say it's a product of that country when actually nothing in the electronic product was actually made in that country. Since electronics are made of so many tiny components, it's really hard for authorities to determine exactly what percentage was made in what country. It's a challenge to move an entire supply chain. It's costly and time-consuming. And many businesses that are struggling to survive seem to think transshipment might be the answer. But of course, it's all at the peril of being caught. So this is the main issue with that, is this trade war, these tariffs, right? And Trump's kind of need to want to uh, change that and control that. So that is what's going on with the macro worldwide trends. And now let's discuss Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and how that fits in with that. This is why I said this is going to be a beefy episode. <laughs> okay. So it was announced today that China Central Bank is seeking to accelerate the development of its own legal digital currency. This is big news. This is big news coming from the People's Bank of China. Now, China's central bank said that it will accelerate the research and development of its legal digital currency. And that is according to a statement from the People's Bank of China today. The central bank hosted a video conference where it discussed major tasks for the second half of 2019. This fits in perfectly with the correlated data that everybody is talking about how we're in this, you know, beginning stages of a recession in early 2019. So during this meeting, the regulator mentioned cryptocurrency specifically saying it will closely monitor global cryptocurrency trends. Why would they do that? Well, last month, director of the bank's research bureau, Wang Xin, revealed that the bank is looking into developing its own cryptocurrency. This was last month because of, guess who? That's right, Facebook Libra Project and its likely influence on global monetary policy. I think the vast majority of us Americans here, and I'm not I'm specifically talking to us and, and, and not to the rest of the world. This is a world podcast. I, I, need, I need to remind everybody of that and even myself sometimes. But the vast majority of us saw that Facebook Libra project as something that was kind of alarming. We knew what it was. You can go back and listen to our old episodes about why we talked about the face off with all that going on with the Senate hearings. But 
other people were paying attention to in other countries. And recently, the CEO of China's telecommunications giant, Huawei, Zenafi Ren, also publicly commented that China has more power than Facebook when it comes to issuing cryptocurrencies, suggesting that the government, if indeed moving into the space, will have an overwhelming impact, right? This is alarming. This is alarming for not only cryptocurrency, but but for Bitcoin, right? Okay, now this is this is what's going on with China and the trade wars. But what's even more interesting is that America enjoys a unique position of power over the world's financial system. It, it really does, you know, and, and I think people just need to come to understand that that is truly how it is. And it's because of the supremacy of the US dollar that several of the nation's adversaries appear to think they found a clever way around this decades old setup from what uh, we heard Perry talking about earlier in this podcast. And they think it's going to be cryptocurrency. Of course, we saw Venezuela's government try to do this and it was unsuccessful. But if you look at somebody like Russia, Moscow is prioritizing blockchain technology advancement as a long-term economic and national security goal to lessen the impact of U.S. sanctions and diversify its foreign currency reserve. We also know that Iran, we reported on this week, that's also looking into cryptocurrency and allowing mining now inside their own country. The internet belonged to America for the longest time, and President Vladimir Putin has said that blockchain will belong to the Russians. That's a bold statement. You also have several owned or state-owned banks are running pilot tests of blockchain applications in Russia's National Security Depository. And this organization that will settle the, the country's security trades. We also know that NASDAQ is doing the similar things. They're not talking about it, but we know that we've heard that there is similar ongoing stuff in related to world transactions and how that's gonna be on the blockchain. Like I did say, Iran's central bank is seriously considering creating its own state-backed cryptocurrency and, and to help with deal with sanctions that, uh, that that comes with the United States controlling the, the, the world's uh, supremacy, the, the dollar. And you also have China, and what we just discussed is among this group of countries because it is less threatened by the United States sanctions and because its leaders have revealed a few specific details about blockchain ambitions, it still is looking at, it's probably the best country that's uh, set up and, and probably best positioned to create a blockchain-based system that can compete with the dollar-based one. It really is. And a lot of people argue that uh, this trade war is uh, probably going to be is kind of going to push that to the edge. Again, this is all just research and everything that we kind of covered and what we're looking at. And this is coming from MIT. This is coming from Columbia, Wall Street Journal. is coming from the New York, uh, um, New York Times. Like this is coming from everywhere. Uh, it's not just coming from sources within the crypto ecosystem. You know, the Coin Desk or the Coin Telegraph or the Block Crypto. So. What does all this mean and what does this mean for the rest of the world? It means that another currency could strongly compete with or even replace the dollar as a reserve currency. And there's little there's little you don't really have to go kick a rock down the road and turn a corner, make a left there and then reach a dead end, hit a twig and then, you know, boom, there's that cryptocurrency you're looking for. No, the vast majority of the people realize that this cryptocurrency is going to be Bitcoin. And this is where it all comes to that head. If the rest of the world is looking for another currency to compete, you don't have to look any further. They won't have to look any further than Bitcoin to realize that that is the best store of value that we have on this planet. 
that doesn't belong to any country whatsoever. So much so that the federal chairman, Jerome Powell, has even said that Bitcoin, he calls it useless, but he recognizes its true value. Take a listen. All right. And uh, to return to the question that Senator <coughs> Perdue had asked you about the impact of a cryptocurrency system uh, on our reserve currency in the in the world, particularly in the United States reserve currency, which has, as you both indicated in your conversation, uh, has I think the United States has benefited from our currency being the world's reserve currency. If a cryptocurrency system were to become prevalent throughout the globe, would that diminish or remove the need for a reserve currency in the traditional sense? I think things like that are possible, but we, we really haven't seen them. We haven't seen widespread adoption. I mean, Bitcoin is a good example. Really, almost no one uses Bitcoin for payments. They use it more as an alternative to gold, really. It's a store of value. It's a speculative store of value, like gold. Um, so we don't have, and that, that people, have, of course, have been talking about this since cryptocurrencies uh, emerged, but um, we haven't seen it. But that's not to say we won't see it. And if we do see it, yes, you could see um, a return to an era in the United States where we had many different currencies and, uh, you know, in, in the so-called, I guess, national banking era. And that's what we discussed in the beginning of the show. So where does this leave Bitcoin? Well, if you, if you look at what he just said, we are well on our way to new all-time high, highs for Bitcoin. We had a great, I'm talking about a fantastic first half of the year uh, with, with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Mind you, we don't have this uh, alt season, but we did have an alt season in May and in June. There, there was some run up there. So we did have somewhat of an alt season back then. It wasn't it wasn't known at the time, and I, a lot of us didn't pinpoint it in the space. But that was a little bit of what I would call a little alt season. A lot of stuff was pumping back then. I think we're going to see that here in the short term, right? So if we look at, of course, in April and in and in uh, May, and then also in June, we saw some new all time highs for twenty eight from twenty nineteen, and you know it's this conviction. It, it's knowing these, this foundation and knowing this asset class like inside and out and its strength really in the network effect of how Bitcoin has truly revolutionized everything. I think a lot of people already know how I feel about this, but when it comes to Bitcoin and when it comes to its value, it really derives from the network effect of it. And if you're a technologist, you understand that to the T. And we've covered that in the past, so I'm not going to get into that right now. But if we look at several vantage points that happened earlier this year, we can kind of understand why Bitcoin is set to explode later. And now this is, you know, strictly from the mainstream media. And when I say mainstream media, I mean these New York Times, these Washington Posts. I mean, you know, the CNBCs, the Fox News, the uh, uh, CBSs of the world covering Bitcoin and covering cryptocurrency. And, and even then you have some of these people in the Senate and some of these people in the, in the House of Representatives that are actually learning this stuff. We hear them talk in these different speakings and these different hearings, and they actually have a base understanding of cryptocurrency now. And that's 
awesome because this time last year there was not that base understanding. So this is good news. We also are looking at people that are no coiners, you know, coming out of the woodwork. No one would have believed, you know, you would have uh, Peter Schiff, you know, go on a debate with Pompliano this week about gold and cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And then for him to kind of look like he understands that Bitcoin is going to be around. There was a time where he didn't even think Bitcoin would even get to, you know, $10,000, much less where it's at now. And what we're also seeing, too, is with exchanges, you know, their volumes have skyrocketed it, right? Coinbase Custody and Grayscale announced something today that was spectacular. Coinbase Custody will hold all of Grayscale, Grayscale's investments inside of their inside of their uh, custodian. So what I'm saying is that we're seeing this uh, this this space move really, really, really fast, and it's starting to pick up steam here in August. Just kind of what we expected. Uh, we can also see that there's qualitative factors that feed into why these prices are going up. And like I said, that's network effect. That's just extremely just bullish. And if you look at just the news in general that happened the first half of this year, yeah, Facebook Libra, you know, that's probably, you know, the most important crypto project, you know, in in a very long time. Uh, And it was introduced on June 18th. Uh, specifically this this backdrop of Facebook Libra and the global macro trend that we already discussed. But this monetary policy responsibility that we're talking about today from central banks globally is a direct effect of why Bitcoin has gone up in these past few days. We knew we were going to retest those, you know, $10,700 levels when we were talking about Bitcoin at $9,300, $9,400 last week. We just didn't know why that was or how it was going to get back up there. But we knew we were going to retest it. And this is why I say if you're not looking at every aspect of this space, you're not going to understand it. And what when I look at TA, that's a, that's its own thing on its own, right? That doesn't tell me anything. It just tells me where it's supposed to go and where it should go. It doesn't say that it's going to go there, but it gives me options on which two ways it could go. And then you also have something like the news. You have to pay attention to that. Then you have something like this whole global macro uh, trends and events that happen that's going on. The China's, you know, of the world. You have the Federal Reserves, like all that kind of stuff that's going on. You have to look at that. And then you have to have a really good base understanding of just understanding how networks work, understanding why protocols function the way they function, understanding how different link layers will approach those different protocols and how that'll go back and forth between that kind of processing, right? And how that network effect really does spread. And so when you have all those things in place, you still have to go out there and find other people's opinions and find other people and what they're saying because market sentiment goes a really long way in this space. It's probably one of the things that's really not ignored, but the longer you stay in, the longer you realize that you could be bullish on, <laughs> you know, I'm a perfect example of this. You could be bullish on, you know, Cosmos or something long-term because you see the potential technology potential, but market sentiment for, for, for something like that is going to be completely different than what your sentiment is going to be on that. So you really need to pay attention to market sentiment. And that, that really does, you know, play a, a key frame to this kind of what I used to be for being like a, like a triangle is now turned into like a hexagon where you have all these different sides. And I have, if you go to my room here where I do this podcast, I have this, have this hexagon that I have all these different sides written out. And whenever I go through like a show or whenever I go through, I look at all these different angles and try to understand each one specifically. And what's great about what we're doing here at Thriller Crypto and this subscription podcast specifically is we're giving you all those different aspects. So I'm, I'm not just paying it. I'm not a one trick pony, as they would say. We're looking at everything. 
right? We have to. It's when you invest this much time and this much money in this space, you you have to really look at everything to really get a good uh, overreach of what's going on. And then we also look at something like uh, just like data privacy and how it was kind of at the center of all this here in June. You know, it really brought to light. I was really surprised that the Senate and the House of Representatives were really able to understand why privacy was important. And I, and I think a, the last majority of us didn't think that was ever going to be something that would come out of their mouths, especially if you're a lot younger in age. I never realized that they cared about that stuff, but technically they, they do. So some of the other highlights we have are like Binance launching their margin trading. We have Binance announcing its U.S. subsidiary because we know they had to cut ties of that of that uh, FAFTA uh, regulation that, that happened here at, at G20. Then we also have, uh, you know, Ripple investing 50 million into MoneyGram, basically buying its way into these old dinosaur tech companies so they can implement blockchain and DLT. You have Ledger X receiving CFTC approval, announcing its own retail investment product this week, and then going through with that on the launch date this week. You have Cash App, you have also, you know, Cash App adding Bitcoin deposits is big, but also having their quarterly earnings call, which we didn't cover this week, but we'll cover tomorrow on uh, Thriller Insights. But you have that going on, too, as well. And then you also have this next effect that, that no one's talking about. You have BACT, right? And BACT is such an integral part of where all this is going to go here in the second half of 2019. And, and the ETF Bitcoin ETF is going to be a big impact. So we have two big impacts happening for that second half of 2019. They're going to be leading indicators of where this is going to go and why this impact with the Fed and how this is all going to transpire. We're going to have the, this this kind of uh, backed user testing that's happening right now. Let's hope the, the SEC and the CFTC can get in line and get something passed so they can start launching this futures contract. Then we also have something that's very important is the Bitcoin ETF. If this gets declined, we're going to see the effects of that. Most definitely. If this gets approved, we're going to see the effects of that. Most definitely it gets delayed. We'll see the effects of that, but I don't think it's going to cause such a huge drop. We'll wait and see. We'll look at market sentiment for that. But ultimately, it's understanding what exactly is going to go on and understanding what to look for. And those are some of the June highlights. Some of the August highlights is the ones I just mentioned. But, you know, if you if you just kind of understand from a global macro trend and, and Bitcoin and, and where this is all going and, and why this is important, you, you really need to realize that the price has increased 26% in June, and that's after increasing 60% in May. <laughs> so it really doesn't need to, I really don't need to sit here and say that uh, at the time of this, you know, this podcast that we're experiencing, you know, you know, a significant or much needed pullback, right? Like it, 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 it's peaked, it peaked June 26, right? When it reached 14K. I mean, that was 60%, you know, on the month, you know, so, you know, in typical BTC, BTC fashion, we're going to get a pullback and it's going to come violently, but it didn't actually come that violently from 14K to 9K. Wow. That's actually pretty good <laughs> compared to what we witnessed in, in, uh, in, in 2018. Right. I mean, I remember my 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 kind of stomach dropping when I when I saw it go from 7k down to 4k down to 3k in such a short span. I was just like, oh my god! If <laughs> you can go back and listen, I forget which episode it was. I think it was Bitcoin Diehard where I was just like, wow! I was just sunken. You know, I was just in that sunken place trying to understand what is going on. It, it was scary, but this pullback 
it wasn't violent. It was no way out of line with what we were expecting. We were pointing towards that. A lot of other people in the space were pointing towards that. This is where TA comes in handling because we understand why retracing and oscillators and, and RSI and, and why resistance levels are such a big key to understand and why a deeper pullback is probably more, uh, you know, likely going to happen here in the short term. But uh, let's hope not. Right. But we'll talk about that for a different show. But ultimately, what I'm trying to get across is that this new kind of like world is forming. You have this new kind of, you know, Federal Reserve, China trade war, Bitcoin, store value all coming together all at once. And it's it's uh, it's going to be a beautiful disaster, as as uh, some musician has said in the past, not related to this, something else. But that there's one person that understands this better than any other person in this space. And I sincerely mean that. It's Travis Kling. When I saw him at Ethereal Summit, the guy blew my mind how he was able to point out all this, these different aspects of everything. And what I have here is a conversation that he recorded, I want to say maybe a month ago, where before this even happened, he was already pointing out where this was going. And the guy gets it. He understands it. Uh, it's It's really important for people to understand that if you're interested in this space, you really have to look at everything or you can just subscribe to me and I'll show you everything because I'm not biased or anything like that. So take a listen to Travis as he explains why this uh, why he saw this coming. It's pretty fascinating. Oh, then I should also mention that the, the audio is kind of shaky. So uh, you might want to lower your volume a little bit. You know, so so, in t- you know, people ask me a lot, like, how do how do regular people how should regular actually just you know, people get exposure to this asset class, um, people that aren't super wealthy and things like that. You know, if you're an accredited investor, I would tell you put it in a fund. Um, I'm biased, but that's what I would tell you. If you're not a accredited investor, I think the, the, the Bitwise uh, index fund, I think their minimum investment is like 10000 I think. Um, and uh, that strikes me as a great way to get exposure into this. Or I think, you know, Coinbase has the sort of that weekly buy mechanism. I think you can spread, I believe you can spread that out across the names that are on Coinbase. That'll give you some diversification. Um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, fundamentally, I'm fundamentally pretty overweight Bitcoin. You know, I've been saying for over a year now that I think the, the value proposition for BTC relative to its status quo, which is gold is much more, uh, uh, it's much better understood right now than any other crypto assets value 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 proposition is relative to its unique status quo um but uh i'm not a maximalist um i do think uh money is is the killer app for distributed ledger technology right now Mm -hmm. um and so i think uh uh the total addressable market is is enormous uh the world's ready for it now you look at what's going on with central bank and government monetary and fiscal policy the world needs what Bitcoin is right now. Um, well, there was a there was an article. Um, um, I, I'm sure it was in the American press. It was in the um, it was in the Japanese press here in the in the Nikkei, and um, it's basically Trump is telling Powell to uh, lower interest rates. Yeah, and he's talking about putting um, Herman Cain and Stephen Moore on the yeah. Federal Reserve uh, Board. Yeah. Um, I don't recall a president who has been right. so direct 
in telling the Fed what he thinks they ought to be, what they ought to be doing. Uh, he challenged them in, uh, I think it was in January, December, and basically said, don't raise rates again. And now he's actually coming out and, and seemingly very forceful saying, uh, it would be a good idea if you yep. actually lowered rates. Yep. Uh, how does this enter into your thinking or your views, just to pick up on what you yep. said? Did you see Stephen Moore? Did it make it in the press that Stephen Moore was lobbying for his Fed position by, he was in the New York Times saying that if he got the position, the first thing he would do is, is, is demand a 50 bips rate cut. So he's he's hand-waving to the president saying, if you, me, if you get me, me in here, I'm going to lower rates. I cannot tell you how bullish that is for Bitcoin. Yeah. I, I, I cannot tell you. Yeah. Um, Bitcoin, crypto is a risk asset. Right. Um, specifically, Bitcoin, though, is, is a risk asset with a specific set of investment characteristics yeah. that become increasingly more attractive the more irresponsible monetary and fiscal policy is. Uh, Bitcoin has gone through a, a number of different identities over the, the, the 10 years. You know, it's like, a, you know, it's like you know, a kid in, in junior high, right? That like, oh, I went through this phase where I was like wearing baggy jeans and like, you know, whatever. Like uh, a I was on a t-shirt. My time. <laughs> um, I, didn't, uh, I, I didn't go to school when they were wearing baggy jeans, but you know, yeah. you know, but, but 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 Bitcoin has gone through some identities, and 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 uh, you know, remember like two years ago when you know Bitcoin was going to go to the moon because it was going to let American you could buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin. Remember that? Yeah. Like that was that was why we needed Bitcoin, right? Because it just wasn't working in America to buy coffee. It's too hard, right? And that's that's obviously a silly concept. <laughs> Bitcoin is a global, immutable, decentralized, digital, non-sovereign, hard cap supply store of value. Right. That's what Bitcoin is. Yeah. And it is an insurance policy against the largest monetary and fiscal policy experiment in human history, which is globally coordinated quantitative easing while simultaneously running massive deficits on top of an increasingly untenable debt level. And that's that's not hyperbole to call that the largest experiment, monetary experiment in human history. That's, that is unequivocal fact. And uh, we've been going down this path now for 10 years. And uh, the Fed, starting in 2017, tried to get us... Uh, wean us off of, of the drug of cheap liquidity, started started uh, raising interest rates from obviously zero, so you're starting at a really low base, uh, and uh, roll off the asset purchases and then start to start to actually roll off that balance sheet that had ballooned to four and a half trillion dollars or whatever. Um, and uh, starting in 2018, risk assets started rolling over one after another. And that was punctuated by the sort of dumpster fire Q418 that we had for all risk assets. Right. Um, and uh, that Q418 punctuation was punctuated by uh, Steve Mnuchin calling the plunge protection team on December 24th. And if you look at uh, a chart of just about any risk asset, that was the absolute bottom dollar of the meltdown. And uh, we bounced hard from there. Mm -hmm. And the last day of January, right? So so December 17th, J-PAL, Autopilot, remember that? Yeah. Uh, 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 J-PAL is talking about um, uh, the balance sheet roll-off is on autopilot. And, you know, market really didn't like that. Trump's on Twitter talking shit, yeah. blah, blah, blah. I mean, market didn't like it. Trump didn't like it. 
point of protection teams called market rips back higher. All these other, all the other central banks start talking dovish. They're talking dovish. You know, people are starting to expect. You know, you've got a, a what's his name? Uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Drucken Miller, Stanley yeah, Drucken Miller, one of the best yeah. investors of all time. Right. He's he's saying this is an enormous mistake. Jeff Gunlock sitting there talking about this is an enormous mistake. Um, last day of January, FOMC statement, complete dovish capitulation. Yeah. Um, complete U-turn. Uh, from a tightening and uh, hawkishness and, uh, you know, rolling off the balance sheet to uh, uh, full accommodation by any means necessary in a decidedly dovish stance. The price of Bitcoin has not been lower since then. That was the last day of January, February 8th, LTC ripped 30% in a day. Right. And we have not looked back since. that. The, the market structure for crypto changed on February 8th, yeah. 10 days after that meeting. Yeah. And then J-PAL went on uh, 60 Minutes on March 10th, yeah. uh, confirmed that dovishness, you know, in a 60 Minutes type of fashion. Yeah. And Is that then, the one with uh, Yellen and Bernanke were sitting beside him? Uh, yeah, I think that was a different one. I know okay. which one you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And then March 26th, yeah. uh, uh, next FOMC statement, further confirmation. And then in the meantime, you've got the ECB, the BOJ, the PBOC, Reserve Bank of Australia, Canada, everybody falling in line. And, there, and, and there's, a, there's a spectrum of, of uh, dovishness and, and all these central banks are sort of lining up because they can't be, nobody can be too far away from, from anybody sure. else, right? Sure. And ECB's sort of the furthest out there because they're the most screwed, right? They're the most screwed. Oh, yes. Um, the euro as a currency is uh, it's only seven years older than Bitcoin. I, I actually love that. You know, that's I, an interesting. I, know. I hadn't I lo- thought of it I love that. that. But you're, you're that's, a, right. that's a great framework, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, the euro is seven years older than yeah. Bitcoin. What do you what do you really want to bet on lasting longer? Yeah. What do you yeah. really want to bet on, right? Yeah, it is getting that point. It's, it's a, I mean, it's a very bullish, bullish view, obviously. And... If you manage your risks well as, as you do, you also think about what are the risk factors that ultimately could lead you to change kind of that bullish positioning. Is there anything that, that you see that possibly, if this scenario evolves, that's kind of where I change my, my view and I decrease Bitcoin exposure or get out of Bitcoin completely? What, what would that look like? Sure. Um, so like I said, so crypto is a risk asset. Um, so, so to the extent that, uh, uh, you know, don't fight the Fed. You've heard that meme, don't fight yeah. the Fed, right? That trade's been working for a decade, yeah. over a decade now. Um, you put that trade on, it's, pretty, it's a really straightforward trade. Don't fight the Fed. Uh, you put that trade on over a decade ago and you go play golf, you've made tremendously good returns. Um, and crypto is an extension of that. Uh, so to the extent that you start... You know, if central banks kind of tighten back up, crypto, the, the market cap of crypto as a whole is going to go down. Um, you know, prior to the capitulation um, that you saw at the end of January from the Fed and echoed by the other central banks, prior to that, we thought uh, $2,000 BTC was totally on the table. Right. Totally on the table. Um, and 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 in my in my monthly update letters, I mean, there's a real there's a real clear cadence of like our bull of of, of our uh, bearishness, and then 
you know, they go out the first of every month. So then Feb 1st, I said, okay, the Fed just did a thing and this is a big deal for crypto. And then by the time March 1st came out, I said, okay, this market just started acting really differently because of, I think, because of what just happened. So, so... Jay Powell put the bottom in the crypto market. Sure. So, so to the extent that, that they do some some, some things that uh, um, are are bearish for risk assets as a whole, crypto is going to be affected by that. And when the quantitative easing policy started, I can't remember if it was 2009, 2010, but I, I do believe it was it was after uh, the, the Nakamura white paper had come out. And they were talking about, and I remember the night before, the first the first round was going to be something in the neighborhood of 500 billion. And I used to talk to a lot of uh, U.S. government bond traders yep. in Tokyo in my previous job. And my first thought was, this is not going to end well. Yep. Okay. Uh, but their attitude was, hey, this is this is some uh, some money for the boys. Yep. In a lot of ways, so. Um, it, it, it just didn't leave me with a comfortable feeling. Yep. So anyway. And so that's a key conversation, a little bit of insight into, you know, how, how everybody thinks about what's going on. And, and Travis is just months ahead of everybody else that I've come to realize, you know, um, Willie Wu is one of them that's just far ahead. Uh, and those are the key people that I'm looking at. And there's some other ones, uh, but, uh, one of the things I do want to mention, because I'm totally a person that likes to give you the good and bad, some of the worries that I have for, for Bitcoin here in the second half, and these these are absolutely the truth, is Tether and Bitfinex and what's going on with that in the New York Attorney General's office. Like, that is seriously scaring me. I don't know how that's going to end, but it, it, it's not going to be good for Bitcoin. So that's one thing to pay attention to, right? Uh, another thing as well is, uh, you know, the CFTC and uh, other regulators going after BitMEX. BitMEX has a huge order book. Uh, there's a lot of liquidity there. Uh, the, the, by them uh, going overseas and, and trying to understand quotes with quotes uh, what they're doing and how they're creating this market uh, is, is, is not good. Because <laughs> uh, if they get shut down, we'll feel that impact uh, ultimately. Um, so that's another thing that I'm worrying about. And, uh, and, and then also just one thing that you should always just keep in mind is just, uh, just exchanges in general. You know, I, I don't foresee any exchanges getting hacked, but that's something that can always happen. And that always has a, uh, an effect on this space. Um, most notably this year is Binance, right? Um, so I think those, those three things are always in the back of my mind. I think once we kind of see the end to that Bifinex tether thing, I think my mind will be more at ease because ultimately I feel like what's going on is BitMEX is going to end up uh, re- or backed and, and other custodians here in the U.S. and other exchanges are going to be replacing a lot of what BitMEX's liquidity is doing uh, and where they're at. So we'll see how all that shakes out. Ultimately, none of us know where this is going to lead, right? But these are the three things that, that, that kind of keeps me up worried about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency here in the, uh, in the short term and I would say in the next six to 12 months. Uh, but yeah, I like to I like to mention that because a lot of people like talk about the good stuff about Bitcoin and everything like that. Uh, and then I guess it could throw in centralized mining in China from Bitcoin. <laughs> but on 
honestly, if you really look at it, most most uh, digital assets that are being mined, uh, it, it, are they're all coming from China. Like Grin is a new cryptocurrency. It's heavily mined in China. The vast majority uh, of that hash power is coming from there. So it, th- th- these are things that I think will end up getting fixed over time. We know that last year there was some news that New Jersey was going to you know, open up its own Bitcoin mining plant and i'm not sure if they did there hasn't been any news on that recently but that was something that we were kind of looking at as a bullish sign going forward to kind of rid this kind of centralized mining from everything uh, in china Uh, so those are the things that i'm looking at here as worries in the short term You know, with the amount of work that's kind of been done, you know, you know, to date, just on the infrastructure side of things in 2018 and 2019, it's never been easier to own crypto than ever before. You have to realize that there's a tremendous amount of work that's being done currently right now, you know, from different people, from just humans pouring in, you know, capital into this space or financial capital that's being input into the space. There's more technological leaps that are going on in, 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 inside of innovation and, and innovating what crypto is and where it could possibly go when it comes to de- decentralized finance. There's more interest than ever before that I can remember as far back as 2015. And the value propositions of crypto assets and Bitcoin and what's being understood just on a macro trend level as far as sophistication of it, It's bullish as hell. See you next time.